Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. How are you? You're the one that has been absent away, traveling, hopefully not being burnt alive. How was your new year? It was really nice to be back in Australia. I spent some time with my family, which is always great. And I'm now an uncle, which was also a really cool experience. I've got a little baby niece. Thank you. Little baby niece that's super cute. But yeah, the fires back in Australia were pretty intense. I was in Sydney, so not directly affected other than all the smoke, but the rest of the country was on fire and it was really, it still really is not good. It's really sad what's happening back there. Yeah. No, I mean, it just the, I mean, not just the images, but the statistics, it is pretty terrifying. Yeah, it is. And everyone that's been affected and the animals as well, just like the number of unique species that are in Australia, And some of them may no longer exist after what's happened, which is really, really sad to think about. So, yeah, that part was a little bit of a downer. But otherwise, it was really good, but also reinvigorating. And I'm very excited to be back. How was your holiday? Did you have a good break? I did. I did. I was very sort of busy, you know, from a a recreational sense, but uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. It was good to get back here in 2020, which I am recording 2020 as being the next decade. (laughs) (laughs) I know there's a semantic argument about this and technically, you know, we start with year one and it's the end, but no one's going to say, oh, what were your like favorite songs of the 2010s and list anything in 2020? (laughs) So I am calling it a new decade, 2020. I'm going to refrain from making 2020 vision jokes Mm. and yeah, ready, ready to get going. Did you just make a 2020 vision joke? I think I might have. <laughs> it was a meta 2020 vision joke. Oh, very good. Well, actually, on the subject of travel, and I am very sheepish to admit this, we may not be able to record next week because I'm back on the road. I'm going to Davos. The words struggle to come out of my mouth because that just sounds unbelievably pretentious. But I wanted to say something because in case one of our listeners or a few of our listeners are there, please ping me and let me know. I'd love to say hello. I mean, (laughs) apparently we have become the podcast of the elites for the elites. (laughs) It's very tragic. A little bit. My reticence was in part the pretense, but I was also expecting a little bit of a ribbing from you. So I'm glad that came to be. I'm just a struggling blogger, so... You're off in your hoity-toity conferences, uh, soldier on alone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, anyhow, you could argue that this podcast, you know, like underground radio, you know, this sort of like the heritage you've talked about a lot, you know, the idea where we can sort of record, you know, I'm sitting in my office, you know, home office here in Taiwan, you're at home in San Francisco and we can record this thing and spread all the world. And it's so great to sort of, you know, reach people in a way without gatekeepers that was not possible before. And, you know, what it sounds like, what I'm hearing from you is that that was sort of the beginning of exponent, this sort of like underground sort of thing. And we've reached the end of that. is, dare I say, the end of the beginning. <laughs> That's a pretty good start to the new decade, Ben. I oh, appreciate oh, that. <laughs> we, we, we are going back to... Uh, <laughs> I wrote about uh, Visa this week and that acquisition, but I think we're going to spend some time on what I wrote about last week, in part because it sort of worked out. It wasn't sort of on purpose. I mean, but it, it sort of I worked out as a very good sort of opening a new decade piece, I think. And, you know, I called it end of the beginning, in case you haven't picked up on the truly terrible joke that I just attempted to make. But... It was a very interesting article to write for me because in some respects, it felt something that was very clear and obvious. And at the same time, it was very terrifying to write because it's one of those articles you write that if you end up being wrong, it's going to be thrown in your face for like (laughs) the rest of your career. But hey, it's out there now. So nothing I can do. All I can do is try to explain myself. Well, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. 
for a couple of reasons. The first one is it's contrary to the accepted wisdom of how Silicon Valley operates, which is, oh, there's always going to be someone new that comes along and just displaces the last one. And this was a very cogent argument to make the case, actually, some of these companies might have actually embedded themselves in such a way that that's not the case. The other thing was it just was so enlightening and almost just doing the history comparison with some of these other technological paradigm shifts, it was just during that comparison, I think was really powerful. So I'm excited to dive into this with you. Yeah. So in this article, the industries, and I got more into some of the literature around this later in the daily updates of the week, but I'm going to focus on sort of the article in question at the end of the beginning. I focus on the automobile industry. And what was so fascinating to go back and look at was I focus on the U.S. only. It's hard to like get records from everywhere and where stuff's from. And even within the U.S., it was super tricky because like, is a motorized buggy a car or is a car a car? Is it a steam car a car? I end up counting electric cars. There's a ton of electric car companies, believe it or not, back then. Elon ate your hot app. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I mean, they weren't viable, you know, for lots of reasons, batteries. And, you know, the internal combustion engine just went so much further and ended up being so much more reliable at that point in time. But the long and short of it is, however you want to counter or define it, the overall Arc is very, very clear, which is in 1895 was the first U.S. automobile maker. Not the first one. I think the first one was Benz in Germany. But in 1895 was Dorea Motor Wagon Company. So between 1895 and 1900, and it's funny that I mentioned the counting decades thing here. I actually went back and forth here. Wait, is 1900, do I include that as far as the tens or the before? So I, I was living this there we struggle. Go. <laughs> I believe I ended up counting it as, uh, I don't remember what I did actually. I have to go look at my Excel sheet again. But as I defined it, which I can't remember what it is, between 1895 and 1900, there was 35 automakers in the U.S. created. And I'm talking about the companies themselves, not necessarily models. Although a lot of these companies only ever you know, created one model, as you might suggest. Then in the 1900s, there was 233 automakers that were created in the U.S., just an explosion. Like we went from nothing to hundreds of companies making cars. In the 1910s, there was 168. So a little bit less, but still, you know, a pretty substantial amount. But then it really started to fall off. So the 1920s saw 66 new companies. The 1930s saw 10. The 1940s saw 12. The 1950s saw 18. And by the way, a lot of these companies that we're getting to were much more specialized. They weren't big, broad-based sort of car makers. They were focused on one specific model or one specific use case. And so a lot of specialization. All the big guys were already sort of existed. 1960s had six, 1970s had four, and 1980s had zero. And there was really no new car companies then until, you know, you mentioned it before, sort of Tesla came along, which is one of the many things that makes Tesla sort of interesting. The broader point, though, is that by the 1920s, where the drop-off was sort of very, very clear, there were three companies that dominated the industry. And guess what those three companies were called? Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler. That's right. The next 80 years or 100 years even of the car industry was already sort of set by 1920. Despite the fact, if you went back to 1920, I would imagine asking someone who was in this industry and seeing all these companies starting in all the tremendous sort of creativity and entrepreneurship that was around this would probably guess, oh, you know, we'll see what's going to happen in the next 10 years. I mean, it's crazy what's going on. But actually, no, it was over. It was the end of the beginning, you know, in the case of the car industry. 
And so that was sort of the context that I sort of want to put in place to consider, you know, we have this assumption in technology that new companies come along and then they become dominant. And then, yeah, they may be dominant for a decade or so, but then another company is going to come along and it's going to sort of knock it off and knock it off its perch and it will become dominant. And you see this discussion a lot today, particularly when it comes to questions of sort of antitrust and regulation and things on those lines. Well, you know, look at Microsoft or look at the IBM case, right? We did this case in IBM and then Microsoft ended up taking over. They did a case of Microsoft and actually they were already on their way out. And, you know, surely that's going to happen again. And what if it's not going to happen again? Like, what if we are sitting here today and we see these dominant tech companies, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Apple, and that's a very specific list of four. I will get into why it's four and not five in a little bit. But what if actually we look back in 50 years and those are still sort of the dominant tech companies? Like, if you let go of, to your point, the accepted wisdom in tech, the conventional wisdom in tech, and you actually look back historically, not just at the automobile, but also previous revolutions, whether it be steam, whether it be electricity, going back, that's actually what usually happens. You have an explosion of entrepreneurship, you have an explosion of companies at the beginning of a new technology, and then sort of a consolidation and a set of winners that end up dominating going forward. And actually, despite the fact that in technology, in part because the industry tends to be so ahistorical and feels like we're so different that, oh, it's going to somehow be different than all the other sort of industries that came before. And it's not necessarily true that that's the case. It's fascinating. The place that I immediately go to are the conversations that we've had about these specific companies and particularly Apple and Microsoft. I mean, Apple in particular came within I won't say minutes, but it was getting pretty close to like that company being bankrupt before Steve Jobs came back. And then we've talked a lot about Microsoft as well, how it was so dominant in the PC era and that dominance almost caused it to be unable to adjust. And the leadership of Satya Nadella in terms of pivoting the company towards the cloud and thinking about it as a horizontal rather than a vertical company, those narratives are so formative in terms of how I think about these companies. It's so interesting because this lens almost suggests there's an inevitability. Maybe that's a little bit too strong a term, but like short of these guys figuring out ways of completely self-imploding, they're around for another, I mean, each of these paradigms tend to get shorter as you go over through time as a result of the speed of technological innovation increasing. But for the next 50 years, we're stuck with them, short of them doing something absolutely incredible to implode, which is just different to how I've thought about it, given watching these companies for so long and how it felt like at numerous times, particularly Apple, right on the brink. And were it not for incredible leadership from Jobs and Nadella, which have pulled them back, like maybe they wouldn't be in the position that they're in right now. Well, I don't know that that's necessarily an argument in favor of my argument, if that Mm. makes sense. Yes. And I actually, let me step back a moment. You just Uh. said something very interesting, which is that paradigms are getting shorter and shorter. And you know, this was a core part of the argument that I was making. So I would say I made this argument in multiple ways. One is just like, look historically what happens. And it seems, you know, that should be our null hypothesis. Our null hypothesis for technology should be it's probably going to follow the course of other technological changes. But what's interesting is the null hypothesis of people in technology is the exact opposite, right? It's yes. that technology is ahistorical. It's different than what came before. And, you know, which if you step back, it's like, well, let's go, like why? why? Why are we starting from that perspective, right? It doesn't necessarily make sense. But that's sort of like the broader context. But there is a very specific argument that I made in this article that I think touches on maybe takes what you just said and puts a little bit of a tweet 
tweak on it. And the idea is that when we look back at tech, we have these great transformations. And this is well thought of in tech, right? When is it that these companies fall down? It's when new paradigm shifts happen, right? Something new comes along and they're super good at what they did. Like no one feels that IBM sort of lost their prominence because they got beat in mainframes. IBM is still dominant in mainframes today, right? Like Microsoft didn't lose their prominence because they lost their dominance in PCs. They're still dominant in PCs today, right? The whole idea idea is that something larger, a greater market, a more significant market comes along and eclipses. That's right. And eclipses them in sort of importance and prominence. And it's not that they go away. It's that they sort of fade. Right. And this is sort of the idea that happens here. And so the idea is, okay, we had the mainframe era. IBM was dominant. Okay. Then the mainframe era, it's still there, but it's not very important anymore. And then we had the PC era between the mainframe era and the PC era. We had a time that looked a lot like the auto industry, right? We had the first mini computers, which are arguably sort of the electrified buggies or the electric cars of the turn of the century (laughs) and some, you know, internal combustion engines where we were figuring it out. And there was a ton of companies that were built then that, you know, we thought would be huge companies and ended up not being much like, you know, DAC data general, Wang laboratories, which were thought to be massive things. And then quickly the PC came along and say, oh, guess that's not right. You know, like the call that the internal combustion engine. And it's like, oh, now we're in a different paradigm. And in this paradigm, IBM created it, but then ended up as famously holding on to the wrong piece of it. And then Microsoft was able to come in and become dominant. But what happened next is, okay, then Microsoft's dominant, blah, 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 blah. Oh, mobile comes along. And sometimes mobile comes along and Microsoft didn't have the wherewithal and they were focused on the PC business model and the paradigm. And, you know, Apple could come along with fresh set of eyes, a fresh approach, more user-centric, blah, 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 blah. Now Apple's dominant. And it's like, oh, hey, Apple's dominant. Now it's going to come along next. Oh, something like AR is going to come along or something like along. And a new company that's unburdened by the business model of the past and can think fresh and have a new approach and et cetera is going to come along and then Apple's going to fade away, et cetera. Like we're fish in water. Like this is the water that everyone swims in. It's sort of the default assumption that everyone thinks about. And a key point that I was trying to make here is we in tech think about these as sort of discrete events, right? There was the mainframe era and then there was the disruption of the PC, Then there was the PC era, and then there was the sort of disruption of mobile. And now we're in the mobile era, and what's the next disruption? What's coming next? And everyone's like starting to think about what's next, what's next, what's next? I mean, I guess your point is like, what happens if there's not a next? Actually, there are two things as you're talking. It's almost fractal or nested. Like there are the paradigms that shift from automotive into tech, but then there's the paradigms within that paradigm, not to get too dream within a dream, but like tech then has the mini computer and the PC and mobile and so on and so forth. But I think the point you're driving at is we're assuming that these things keep going. What happens if it ends up like the automobile and there's not a paradigm shift or if the paradigm, maybe these things don't just come on a regular cadence, just like we saw in automotive, like there's not been a new automotive company until now. And it took the rise of the battery and electrification rather than the internal combustion engine as a technology for that kind of thing to happen. And I think the point you're trying to drive at is we just assume these things happen on a regular schedule. What happens if they don't? That's actually not quite the point I was driving at. It's like 90% aligned. Okay. And this is where I'm glad to have the sort of the podcast to articulate this is I think the mistake is not assuming something is next. The mistake, arguably, is believing that those paradigm shifts that happened within tech were distinct events that were not related to each other. Okay. 
So what I mean is we think about the mainframe era, then the PC era, then the mobile era, as if they're three distinct things. But, you know, this is a very technological based view of history, right? Whereas what's something that we've talked about on this podcast, or I've written on the blog, the idea of like a job to be done, right? If you think about computing as being a job to be done, and obviously the jobs that can take plays are massive, but just think from like doing basic math, right? Your original mainframes mostly just did calculations. Like they were used for accounting, like adding and subtracting, right? And PCs did that, but they did that on your desk. And then your phone does it, but it does it in your pocket and with you all the time. What's been happening is the computing has just become smaller and more available over time, but the actual jobs haven't changed. It's just become more convenient and more available. And in this view of the world, the mainframe in the PC and the mobile are not distinct. They are manifestations of the exact same thing and just the sort of miniaturization and mobilization of what we've been doing for 50 years. It's not three distinct paradigms. It's one paradigm. It is the computing paradigm. And what's been happening is we've gone from a place where we're limited by technology, like you had to go to a room with your punch cards and type them in and do it on sort of a batch processing sort of thing and do your calculations and walk out and do it towards a little more convenient, a little more present is on your desk, still a destination. You had to go to your desk, right? We called it a personal computer, but it wasn't a personal computer. It was a desk computer, right? That would have been a much better name for it. The real personal computer is the phone because it's with you all the time. It's constantly present. I've made this point before in the context of Apple, right? The best way to think about Apple is Apple is a personal computer company. The main difference in Apple's history is that the computer has become ever more personal. It just went from being on your desk with the Macintosh to being in your pocket or being on your wrist. But it's all the same manifestation. The company's the same, right? The reason we've talked about why did Apple succeed so much more with the mobile era and the PC era is because they were so consumer-centric and consumer-oriented and around design and ease of use. And that mattered so much more the more something was with you and the more you were interacting with it. And so their advantages became sort of magnified. And meanwhile, you have this reflected when it comes to information and connectivity. Again, you used to have to go to the computer. It was fully integrated. The information was there. The data was there. The input was there. It was one literally massive integrated unit in a room that you had to go to and compute on. Then it sort of started to split apart where you had your PC on your desk and you could do some local compute, but also there was probably a backend server on the same intranet, not internet, intranet, where you could connect to and you could store stuff and have more persistence and security and all those sorts of things. And now today we are walking around with phones in our pockets that are connected constantly to these cloud installations that are all over the world and are effectively everywhere. And so to Today, we're doing the same stuff we did 50 years ago, but the state in which we do it has transformed from a batch, isolated destination sort of thing to an omnipresent, continuous sort of thing. I buy that. Well, here's the thing, though. If you buy that, like there is no future place to go. I think you can see this best in the cloud, right? We've gone from having to go to a machine to being on an intranet to being anywhere. What's next after these super scale, hyperscaler clouds? The galactic cloud? Like that's literally what's next, right? We already can access information anywhere and everywhere in the world. There is no next. So it's interesting you say intergalactic cloud because I think there is a case to be made for the evolution of the cloud, but it's not into the intergalactic side of things. We've talked a little bit about how it's evolved from batch to deliberate to continuous and how it's gone from mainframe to on-prem to the cloud. 
the continuous place where we're at right now, where we have the phone and the cloud, it feels like there's a pretty good match between the two. Like there's relatively discrete tasks that phones can send to the cloud to get things in the cloud done. But I think you can start to see the beginnings of what might happen after the phone. And we've talked about it from the consumer side, which is AR, VR. And I'm not actually necessarily referring to that, but rather the distribution of sensors everywhere, the case being made for IoT. And when you have sensors everywhere, you're going to need the computation to support those sensors distributed more. And I actually wonder if that's the future of the cloud, where you start to get computing power with these sensors. If we've got billions of phones. I don't know. Like It's going to be an exponential increase in these number of sensors. I think the cloud's going to have to evolve in order to be able to support that. I actually agree with that. You just made a great point, which is the evolution of the sort of the back end and the front end have very much gone hand in hand. And this isn't an old school client server, or dumb client, smart client sort of you know argument. The reality is it's a hybrid, right? That we've evolved into a model for a long time now where you do some stuff locally and do some stuff in the cloud and they sort of work together. In that respect, your point about PCs and sort of on-premises back rooms working together has now exploded to mobile phones and the global cloud providers. Like that's exactly right. And your point further that if we go to the next step to Internet of Things and devices everywhere and sensors everywhere, there must be an evolution in the cloud. I completely agree. I think that's exactly right. And the way that cloud computing is done will evolve to service this sort of new world. The point that I would make is so we agree that these are related, right? The way mm-hmm. the cloud evolves related to the way the sort of user interface evolved, the user interface part of the stack. Yes. And so to your point, if you go to a world where user interface is everywhere and consistent and omnipresent, then the cloud should evolve as well. I agree. The big question, though, is imagine that technological progress is like this slope going up, right? And so you had mainframe computing and then you had PC sort of overtaking it. And it was a much larger market and much bigger and more important, right? Yes. Then mobile came along. It was larger and bigger and more important. And it was bigger than sort of PCs. I think you've put your finger on sort of the exact point to push on me on this. My contention is that the paradigm we're at now with these big screens in our pockets. So we have mobility, but I think we're at a sort of like the maximum point of mobility and functionality. Like you think about something like AR glasses, for example, right? You can see that being a thing. I'm not saying AR is not going to happen. I just don't think it's going to ever be as big of a thing or as important of a thing as sort of the phone, the device in your pocket. I think it's going to be an augmentation to that where you use it sometimes, but you don't necessarily use it all the time the way you use your phone. Similar things like the watch, right? Yeah, you can see someone going out for a run with just the watch and their AirPods, but they're not going to watch a movie on their watch. I think we're at a sweet spot right now, if that makes sense, where there is going to be things, but they're going to be less significant and less important than sort of like what we're at now. And I think you could put the same thing with the Internet of Things. Like, yes, there's going to be more Internet of Things devices and arguably more computing to sort of support that. But the actual importance and functionality as being a platform and what we need to think about as what matters most going forward. I think we've reached the peak of like what matters and what happens after this is going to all be built around the assumption that the single most important paradigm, the single most important functionality is smartphones on one side and hyperscaler clouds on the other. And just as we will still have mainframes and we still have PCs, I think on the other side of the hill, we will also have Internet of Things. We will also have AR and VR, but I don't see them ever rising to the same level of importance and eclipsing the smartphone the way the smartphone eclipses something else. Does that make sense? It does make sense. 
And so that's sort of the point here is I don't think this is the end of technological innovation. I don't think this is the end of new things. Like your point about Internet of Things, I agree it's a massive sort of market. Voice assistance, big thing, right? AR, VR are all going to be things. The cloud is going to evolve. There's going to be new ways to compute. But if there's not an eclipse, if there's not something that disrupts or displaces what came before, it follows in my mind that the companies that are still most likely to be dominant in those areas or the downstream areas or the ones that are still most important from a thinking about technology broadly, whether it be from a regulatory perspective or from an analytical perspective, are probably going to be the companies that are the most essential to this top of the hill, if that makes sense. Before we go any further, can I ground you on, like, understand one thing. When you say important, if you were to try to quantify that, how would you do it? That's a good question. Because I was thinking about this, like, I should put metrics on here that will say if I'm right or wrong, right? There's probably some functionality about, like, market cap is probably the most obvious one, where the four biggest companies by market cap right now are Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon. My suspicion is that in 10 years, it'll be the same four. That's probably the most simplest and most obvious sort of way to articulate this. But I'm open to other ideas if you have them. Yeah, because that's almost like an outcome metric. It's like that's a confirmation that the importance was right. But I'm just thinking about in terms of how from a input perspective, like from a usage perspective, I'm not saying that I necessarily have an answer. It was just as I was listening to you, there was a lot that could potentially be hiding behind that word. And when we think about whether something's a or not. I think you're right. The measure of whether it has truly happened or not can be given by market cap. Yeah, it's tricky though, because like Internet of Things, by definition, there's going to be more Internet of Things devices right. in the world than totally, there are smartphones. Totally. Right? Yes, 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 yes. It's not a devices thing. I completely agree. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I thought about it, right? I, I consider I should write something about like what the right metrics are. It, you know, maybe it's one of those like obscenity things, like you know it when you see it. Like Microsoft was still dominant as far as, you know, device share or, or whatever by 2010, but it was clear that they were being eclipsed, right? There yes. was something else coming along. And actually, that's a broader point that I think maybe augurs for my position a bit. You know, everyone new, like mobile, there's something like mobile makes sense. Like mobile is going to be next or something like Microsoft was building mobile devices yeah, in the late nineties. Right. And everyone knew the cloud and the internet. Like you go back and read, you know, Bill Gates's internet memo. Like it was spot on, right? Like people knew this was coming. It was more a matter of how do you get there? Right. And certainly, you know, AWS and Apple were tremendously important in sort of catalyzing how it's going to happen, like the means by which it will occur. But the idea that we'll have sort of access to information anywhere and we'll have devices in our pocket to access it like that was not a radical sort of idea literally for decades like we've been thinking about this for a long time what i think is so striking is we have no similar vision for what's next right yes we can think about ar and vr and sort of having that augmentation on our bodies but no one thinks we're going to live in vr right? we're going to be there you know 24 7 at least i hope not i mean maybe people do i disagree yeah, I would tend to agree. So I think you're right from a consumer perspective. I mean, the AR thing and the watch thing, maybe like there is a world where if you could find a way of non-invasive computing, but it was even more ubiquitous than the phone and the AirPods uh, a little bit speak to it, like intercept the sensors in a way such that you're able to get information that's even less intrusive or requires less friction than pulling something out. But I do wonder about the, is that next generation, the IoT thing, are you 
giving it perhaps a little bit short shrift. Simply the benefit that we've got from digitizing every human effectively by giving them a phone and that them becoming a representation of them on the internet and what you can then do with that from summon cars to message people to whatever. I wonder whether there's going to be that degree of benefit to doing that kind of thing to non-human things. Well, I think there will be benefit. But the question is, do you think there will be such benefit that actually in 10 years and the timeframes are tricky here, right? In 50 years, I think things will be totally different, right? Like this is like a decade argument. And I think that's probably the fairest way to articulate it. Like like look at 2020 compared to 2010, like there is a fair bit of upheaval from 2000 to 2010. There was a massive amount of upheaval. So arguably that upheaval is slowing much like it happened sort of with automobiles. And the question is, is there going to be a cloud provider that actually eclipses is Microsoft and Amazon because of IoT. To me, that is the metric by which your argument is correct that this is actually the next big thing as right. opposed to my argument that, oh, it's a thing for sure, but it's going to be sort of an additional thing, an augmentative thing, whereas we're sort of at the peak for who is going to be dominant. Yeah, like that's a good way of framing it. I guess it's not impossible, but that's a hard case to make. But it's also in part just because it feels like Amazon and Microsoft are so dominant right now in their current positions, it's hard to see someone dislodging them. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to personal devices, right? It's hard to imagine anyone other than Apple winning an AR right now. Like just because it's clearly going to be tied to the phone just for pure computational reasons, because you're going to need to offload some computing to make it lightweight, fit in your head. And Apple is one already has a domination phones. They're so far ahead when it comes to chip technology. And it seems obvious they're going to innovate here. And then, you know, Google will come along. What's the next obvious platform? Like Android is in everything. Like Android powers basically everything that's not Apple when it comes from a consumer perspective and interactivity perspective. And that's sort of my point here. And you just made the same argument in the cloud is that it's not that new innovations aren't going to happen. It's that the innovations by and large are going to be brought to market by the current dominant companies. This is the point in cars, right? It's not that cars stopped changing or things didn't happen. It's that they were brought to market by the companies that were already dominant. And by the time those companies were disrupted from a low-end perspective by mostly, you know, like Japanese imports, that was a low-end disruption because they were sort of over-serving. It wasn't someone coming in on top and doing something bigger and more explosive and better, right? Remember I wrote that article a long time ago called Obsoletive? Mm-hmm. Just taking out the camera and the calculator and like all the different things that you could then put beside like the phone and it's just nuts, right? That's right. The argument that we were having at that time was that disruption was the wrong lens to think about the phone because it was like coming in from the top, right? And if you think about it, disruption makes much more sense once we've sort of stabilized. If you look at tech, it hasn't been disruption. Like, I mean, yes, the desktop disrupted, you know, the mainframe and the phone disrupted the PC, but that's such a narrow view of life. It's just like restricting it to computing devices. But actually, if you back up and think about the implication and effect and interaction with life as a whole, every new device, every miniaturization has magnified the use cases in the places it can be used. So it has actually been disruptive narrowly within technology, but it's been obsolete of as far as like the broader context goes. And the point of my argument is that that is over. The next device coming along that makes the phone not the most important platform I don't see it coming. I can see other things coming along that are less important than the phone. But, you know, it's like the future is actually now disruption in a broader context, if that makes sense. 
Yes, I'm with you on the obsolete, but it's interesting because the case that you made at the start of the podcast, which is when you think about things from a jobs perspective, that this has actually just been one continuum, I almost find that frame on this, not to get into an argument about the application of disruption, but I feel like that's the strongest framing for making the case that each of these successive things has disrupted the previous one. But each one was doing what the previous one did better. Right. The PC was more capable and more useful than the mainframe. But not initially. Right. Like when they first launched, like I could do way more with my computer when it first launched than I could with an iPhone. But the rate of improvement subsequent now, I would if you forced me to pick, I would take my iPhone every day. Ten years ago, that would be a much harder choice to make. Well, sure. If you're defining the jobs merely by what you were able to do previously, a PC was slower than a mainframe, but you could actually use a PC on your desk. Like this is the point I made in the article. I was very sort of clear about this point in the article was like where and when we went from one room to desktop to everywhere. When we went from batch to sort of deliberate to continuous, like those are the attributes that mattered. And in that perspective, every single new sort of small P paradigm, I guess we'll call it, was better on those attributes. And what's next? Where do you go past everywhere? Like once you're everywhere, like what's next? Once you're continuous, what's after continuous? I mean, there is some degree like on an AR or VR perspective, it's like a deliberate immersion, but by definition, by immersive, you have to back out at some point, right? And so that's why I put VR in particular in like the video game lane, right? You decide to go play a video game and then you stop and you go do something else. It's not with you all the time. Even AR, are we really going to have these glasses with us all the time. And even if we do have them with all the time, there's some number of jobs that is very hard to see moving past the phone in a way that they did move down to the phone. Yes. Okay. I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah, I think so. We're just sort of like arguing on slightly different attributes. I yes. Right. No, I think we're saying the same thing. The performance was worse on the traditional metrics, but on these metrics that matter like availability, which weren't on the spec sheet of a PC or a phone, the phone was obviously much, much better and similar to the PC to the mainframe. That's right. And this is clearly a looking back sort of thing, right? You know, when we were in the middle of the transition from mainframes to PCs or from PCs to phones, the water we were swimming in was the traditional attributes of the devices we use today, right? Looking back, we can say, oh, actually the attributes that mattered or the argument that I'm making was where and when. Now, Certainly, it's possible someone's going to come along in 10 years and say, well, you were just swimming in the water of of the world as it was, and there was actually the attributes that actually mattered were X, Y, Z, and then I'll be wrong. And I think you are kind of pushing on it, something around continuous like data, like passive computing. If there is an area where I'm wrong, it's probably that. I mean, we joke about, have you seen her yet? But this idea of sort of data being around you and continuous and constant. Right. You know, if I'm wrong, that's the direction I'm wrong, even more than sort of AR. It's this passive presence and accumulation and computation all around us continuously that could birth new companies that will go past the ones we have today. I, mean, I think that will happen someday. But I wouldn't be surprised years, if, like, right? in a, well, yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if in 100 years we look back and say that was actually a completely new revolution, right? The revolution that started 50 years ago, it feels like we've reached the sort of the natural endpoint, right? We've reached the endpoint of like sort of active computing, right? Passive computing, is that part of the same paradigm or is that actually something completely new? I mean, that's a question that, you know, was going to take a long time to answer. 
So it's like the stage of the automobile where the industry is kind of shaken out and the nature of the innovations, it tends to be much more sustaining in nature. The quality of the products keep getting better. I mean, and you think about it, even in our lifetimes, like the quality of an average car back in the 1980s versus the quality of one now, it's almost night and day, like the extent to which they don't break down and whatever. And that's the axes of improvement along the phone. And the next big thing, quote unquote, is going to be something outside the paradigm of computing that we think about right now. I could buy that. And like this idea that passive computing or this, these passive sensors, IoT type stuff is actually potentially or cryptocurrency. It was interesting in your follow up article, the relationship between the different types of finance, traditional finance and more quote unquote venture finance. Once the paradigms kind of set venture finance goes from like, oh, we're going to invest in all these types of things to like it becoming much harder to find those big winners in this paradigm because the paradigm's kind of shaken out. And then it goes going into a much more emergent world of looking out into all the different things and throwing money in lots of different places into things like crypto, because it's like, okay, that one's sorted out. Time to find the next one. Yeah, this is where I touched on a little bit. This was not a driver for my article, but I did write about the next day because it sort of pointed in the same direction, which was Carlota Perez's technological revolutions and financial capital. And she argues that, you know, we've had these distinct sort of phases in history. And the ones she lists are the industrial revolution, steel and railways, electricity and heavy engineering, and automobiles and mass production. Each of these was characterized by this sort of like upfront, lots of innovation and trying to figure stuff out and lots of new companies. And then a frenzy where, you know, everyone's like, oh, there's money made here and lots of speculation and crazy amounts of money is basically <laughs> set aflame. And then there's a crash. Everyone like way overextend themselves. But then what happens is that's when stuff's actually built out. And what's compelling about her argument, she wrote this book in 2003, which is right on the tail end of the dot-com era, is that her point was that actually, no, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. It's very healthy. And if you look back, the dot-com era was critical to what happened next. One of the big things that happened in the dot-com era, which is like a perfect articulation of Prez's thesis, is there was a ton of companies that built out all this fiber everywhere. It was called dark fiber because they built out tons and tons of infrastructure that no one used. <laughs> and so there was like just dark fiber everywhere. There was like all over the US, like there were cables laid under the ocean and then no one used it. And then all the companies went bankrupt and out of business. Well, guess what? All that fiber is used today, very much so. And it made possible companies like Google. Like Google bought up a huge amount of that to tie everything together. Other companies came along and, and bought it up. And what happened was they were able to get a huge head start and leapfrog because massive amounts of capital investments had been made on their behalf in the frenzy period, in the bubble period. And they were able to snap this stuff up at like dirt cheap prices so they could spend the money on innovating elsewhere and actually useful practical stuff. And that's exactly what happened. That's why a lot of the major internet companies, even today, including Google and Amazon, really got their bearings and their power in that period after the dot-com era, in part because they had a huge tailwind at their back, which was the WorldComs of the world having gone bankrupt to basically build up their infrastructure for them. And Perez goes back in her book to show how this happened in the Industrial Revolution, how it happened in steel and railways, how it happened in electricity and heavy engineering, where this sort of exuberance is actually a critical part of the cycle. But what happened happens is after the bubble, after it happens, the most productive capital after that point 
actually goes into existing companies, making their products more effective and better. And that's the point you just made, right? The future now is making mobile better, is making the cloud better, is just iterating and doing better and better. And that's a big problem for venture capital because venture capital is about the exuberant phase. It's about finding new things, new ideas. And you think about where is venture capital going? Well, it's going to lots of companies that are not necessarily hardcore tech companies. It's going to things like Uber or going to things like Airbnb or WeWork or whatever it might be. And also searching for things like cryptocurrencies, that's the exuberant area, right? Like we have no idea what this is for. There's some cool technology here. We're trying to figure out what the point of it is. And that's a great place to sort of be speculative. But in meanwhile, if you want to make money in sort of like traditional tech, you would be better off. And I wrote about this at the beginning of the week. If you had taken your money and put it into the big five tech companies five years ago or 10 years ago, why? Because it turns out the actual returns, broadly speaking, were in iterating and improving on these core companies, as opposed to trying to come up with you know, what are, are they tech companies? Like we've had podcasts and articles about this, like what is actually a tech company? Cause these actually look like hospitality companies or transportation companies with a tech layer on top. We talk about things like disruption, like their water. And you look at whether it's bees creating a hive and whether any individual bee actually really knows what it's doing. And it's kind of crazy to me that there are billions of people on the planet and the nature of the set of behaviors and motivations that we have are such that when you add them all together, you can get to a point where you're able to look at history and make statements like irrational exuberance is necessary for these paradigms to take place. I mean, just stepping back and marveling at the wonder of it all, that there are these billions of people, whether it's now or whether it was 50 years ago, and the behaviors are all the same. And the behaviors, when you sum them up, seem to match to this pattern time and time again, such that you can start to see the patterns. And it's a necessary part of the advancement of our species. I don't know. There's just a sense of wonderment I have right now thinking about it. No, it is amazing. And I should be super clear. I, Prez's argument and point is a fascinating one. It's one I think in broad strokes makes a lot of sense to me. It was not the foundation for my piece. Like I brought it in the next day. It's like, well, here's another point of view that sort of argues at the same thing. I just want to put that out there because I got some feedback when it's kind of conflating the two. I'm like, oh, no, her argument is her argument. But I do think your point is a good one. Like it is kind of amazing. And another way to look at it is, you can look at sort of the behavior of technology, the behavior of venture. Like, why are people not investing in the next company that's going to disrupt Apple? The market broadly has figured out, no, the opportunities are to build on top of Apple or to build on top of AWS or to build on top of Android or to build on top of Azure. And that's why you've seen you know, all the big startups, all the things that people are working on, particularly in the consumer space, but in the enterprise space, you think about the explosion of, of SaaS companies, they're all predicated on the existence of these companies, right? Every single major venture investment, whether it be you know, in enterprise or in consumer, assumes the presence of iOS and Android on the consumer side and of Azure and AWS on the infrastructure side. Like that's the assumption. Like that's the water. It's funny. People mentally say, oh, of course, it could be a new disruption. But their actual behavior is that we are where we are at. It's so funny you mentioned that in preparation for this 
podcast and I didn't make it all the way through, but it's a book that I've been meaning to read forever, which is Thomas Kuhn's The Nature of Scientific Revolutions. And he's a science historian and he goes back and he looks at paradigms. And the way that the traditional narrative is, is like science is this constellation and we keep adding things and adding things. But he goes back and he's like, that's actually not the way it is. Like if you look at the helio versus the earth centric model of the universe, there are actually times where we were building on a foundation that was not solid. And one of the cases he makes for when a paradigm actually shifts is that there's a group of people that come together to advance the field and they have a common set of beliefs that they all share, that they don't have to go along and start recreating it from scratch. And it's so interesting that the equivalent, like, so for example, Einsteinian or Newtonian physics and so on and so forth, like everybody who builds on that has this common set of understanding. I think the case you're making is the equivalent of that in the technological world is actually the companies. Like we're not going to displace Google or Apple or Amazon or so on. These are now foundations for what we build on. We're not going to come along and try and displace them. We're going to build on top of it. And that's what unleashes this next paradigm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we're in the middle of it. Like if you think about it, just look back over the last five to 10 years, there is no difference in what we view as sort of the foundational companies of technology. All the interest and all the activity is what's on top of that, right? And I think first and foremost here, and this is a point that it's funny, I didn't say it explicitly in the article, but I very carefully had four companies, Microsoft, Mm, Amazon, Google, and Apple. (laughs) I did not list Facebook. And I think Facebook is the first and best example of a company that operates in a world of these assumptions. And they kind of backed into it, right? Because they started in the PC and they like fell into mobile almost an accident, but it turned out they're like a perfect mobile company. But we made this point, like Facebook is an app. They're not a platform. They desperately want to be a platform. They're an app. I've argued and pushed they should focus on this and embrace this. And the truth is, like I've been very critical of Facebook's efforts in AR. Not that AR is not going to be a thing, but I think it's going to be less of a thing that Facebook thinks it's going to be. And also I think Facebook trying to be the platform provider of AR or VR actually will limit AR and VR. If you ask Facebook, they're actually working on AR. Just VR is a way to get there. So we'll grant them that, but whatever. In part because, you know, Facebook's nature is to be this service that runs on everything. And if you're going to be a platform provider, it's like sort of orthogonal to your nature. And then you have the brand stuff and whatever. I've been very critical of it. But I can appreciate more the drive and desire to be a platform because implicit in my argument by not mentioning Facebook amongst those other four is that there is a degree of permanence to, I think, those four companies than there is to a company like Facebook. You know, Facebook's power is predicated on people using it, which is something that can definitely change, right? There's no structural thing holding people on these platforms. And then also sort of their hold on advertising, which is, you know, there's no reason why advertising can't necessarily evolve. Facebook's dominance in advertising is much more of a classic economics, like they have market power now, but they're not necessarily market power. Forever. It's less of a structural, I think, sort of thing to the extent of these four companies in the sort of their areas, if that makes sense. It does make sense. But I think Facebook is the first fish in the new water of technology, if that makes sense, right? The new water is you build on AWS and Azure and maybe Google, and then Google is sort of the distribution on the internet, you know, the way you find stuff. And then Android and iOS are the platforms that that you build apps. And that's where those four companies are. And Facebook sort of sat on top of that, I think, to a degree. It was the first company to sit on top of it. And all the other companies after have mostly sat on top of that. 
Putting aside Android, though, as you put Google, to some extent, so goes Facebook, right? Like break apart Android, which is like the basis for people building things, mobile and so on and so forth. That's everything that's not iOS. In the same way, Google is kind of something sitting on top of these things. Couldn't you make the case that Facebook kind of is too? Like there's probably more. To, I don't want to make that statement. No, but it, it's a fair argument because we always lump them together, right? It's not a traditional sort of platform with like sort of APIs, but it's sort of like the platform for distribution on the internet. It's just where everything starts and ends. And there's no obvious reason why it's going. Like, it feels more foundational than Facebook. Like when you think about it, search, yes, Google has sort of evolved to be more and more keeping you on Google and, you know, probably for monetary reasons, which is from a platform perspective, not a good thing, right? This is always the danger of a platform relying on advertising is the drive to maximize advertising is in conflict with the drive to elevate the things that live on your platform. But I still think search is much more of a platform than Facebook, which is a very much a closed garden, right? Facebook is its own thing. That's the reason why they're able to carve out their space in the first place, because they weren't beholden to Google in a way that almost anyone else was. The fact that Facebook clearly is not a platform is not really dependent on anything outside of Facebook in a way that Google search by definition is dependent on things outside of Facebook. I just think there's much more of a platform aspect to search than there is to Facebook, but certainly less so than something that's like APIs like Azure or AWS or phone operating systems. In part, the reason I mention it is I wonder actually is whether it's like a view that's informed particularly in the West because search in China kind of sucks and they seem to get along just fine. Something I got into a bit this week when talking about like payments and Visa and those lines, there's a degree of path dependence here where a critical thing to understand that people really don't understand about the difference between U.S. and China is despite the fact that we talk about smartphones being dominant, the U.S. is so much more PC centric than almost anywhere else in the world. Like, actually, I still think I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I'll say it again. I still don't think that San Francisco centric tech industry really gets mobile (laughs) just because people don't live where the phone is everything in their life, right? Like there's still a sense of, oh, I can do that in the PC or I go to work and my three big monitors and I build a mobile application, right? Whereas China went from no computing to mobile computing. And that dictates the way, like when Baidu was dominant, it was dominant in a very, very small market of PCs, much smaller than the US and it being much less important going forward. And you see that with payments, for example, right? Like China went from cash to QR codes. That's a huge leap. That's a much better way to operate. The US got credit cards 50 years ago, which are pretty awesome, right? Credit cards work very, very well. Like to go from credit cards to QR codes, it's a very questionable, you know, sort of, is that actually worth the trouble? And so what's happening in the US is we're getting NFC now to pay with credit cards because the credit cards already work pretty well. And NFC makes it a little more convenient. It's sort of an additive sort of thing. But actually, I don't think that NFC is disrupting credit cards by any means. And what's interesting is you can actually see in a world where five to 10 years, U.S. payments actually feels more advanced than China because China, they're still flashing QR codes around and U.S. we're all doing everything by touch, right? It's a path dependent sort of thing. That does not mean one's better or worse. You have to look at all the historical context of how we got to where we are. Trying to make a slightly different point in the argument, though, which is like if these technologies are truly foundational, they should be foundational everywhere. What you just said absolutely explains why Baidu is not as strong as Google is. I guess the point I was trying to make is, though, if search is truly a foundational technology in the way you're describing it, shouldn't it be foundational in a market, even if it's evolved in a slightly different way? No, I don't think so at all. Why should a chimpanzee behave the same way as a human? Like we evolved differently at some 
some point and are now completely different creatures. People look at China, it's like something like WeChat is foundational, right? It's a foundational thing in China. In a way, I would argue Facebook is not in the U.S. because the markets develop differently, like the way WeChat being incorporated with payments, whereas in the U.S. payments are much more tied to the device, whether it be Apple Pay or Android Pay or whatever it's going to be. They're not a part of Facebook. They're different worlds. And I think people look at China and say, oh, the U.S. is going to be like that. I think, no, I don't think so. On the flip side, look at the U.S. where Google is this super important player. Is that going to be the case in China? No, not necessarily. So I would, I guess, disagree with the fundamental precept that you put forward or what's the word I'm looking for? The uh well, it's like the, the paradigm. Uh, no, no, Concept. no, 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 like no. a core thing. Like, no, no, I'm stuck on no, it. no, no, but I get it. I guess what I was trying to explore was, are the nature of the foundations going to be the same regardless of how it evolves? And I guess the answer that you came back with is no, like there's path dependence plays too much of a role. So I guess the point is the foundation of mobile and server side and perhaps some degree of services plus search are the right ones for America and some aspect of the West. If a market evolves completely differently, the foundational technologies might end up being different. Whereas like I look back at the automobile or steel and electricity, it's the same in every different market. I think the case that you just made then is like, actually, the nature of tech is different than in the past in that the foundational technologies may actually be different in different markets. It's an interesting thought. I have to think more about it. I mean, the question is, was it the same in every market at sort of the same stage of development, right? Because we're looking at technology as if we were looking at automobiles in the 1910s. And I don't know the answer to that, you know, because like there's an aspect where China was behind in technology. So they adopted a lot of the way it was used in the West. And now they've started to evolve in sort of a different direction, in part because they adopted at such a later time frame, right? Is that the case when it comes to cars? Like you think about something like, transportation, like why some countries, you know, tend towards certain modes of transportation. Sometimes that depends on when you actually sort of came online as a country, if that makes sense, right? Because it made more sense to build in one direction or the other. And this is where I think actually the payments one is super, super interesting. Like people look at the U.S. being backwards in payments and the U.S. is backwards in payments in 2020, relatively speaking, because we were so astronomically ahead of everyone in 1970. It's not that we lost the will to innovate. It's that What we invented in 1970 was super awesome to institute societal change is really, really hard. And you need to have a massive amount of improvement to justify it happening. And if you already have something that's pretty good, you're just not going to evolve that much. And so Europe comes along a decade or two later. And by that time, like the U.S. invented credit cards before computers, basically, right? Whereas Europe came along. Now we had mainframes. We had other banks had IBM computers running in their back end offices, and they could institute things on the back end that made things like pin verification and all the sort of stuff that's different in Europe versus the U.S. viable in a way that wasn't viable in the U.S. because we started before, right? Then China comes along and they're like, well, everyone has a phone in their pocket. So we're going to start with the idea that this device in your pocket is your authenticator, not some random card that could be stolen or something on those lines. And you end up in completely different places. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's funny. I was in a Twitter arguing with someone in DMs the other day. It was like, you know, talking about the U.S. being behind in trains and being behind in payments. It's like, you know, we can criticize the U.S. for a million things, but if you don't actually think through the broader context about what's going on here, whether it be 
temporal one, like when something was invented, or a geographic one, like the relative density of the U.S. to Europe, for example, like you're not going to come up with the correct interpretation of sort of facts on the ground. And I think, you know, this is a good example of that. Yeah, I think the insight actually harks back to something that we talked about at the beginning, that when I defined it as automobiles and the automobile is the same in the U.S. and Europe and China, broadly speaking, I think that might be true. But I think the point you made around when you think about it from the perspective of the jobs, and then you think about different geographies, the nature of foundational technologies in each geography is actually pretty different. And the balance of automobile versus train versus other forms of public transportation versus air, like, oh, now I start to see how these things, like, yes, you can have different foundational balances of foundational technologies in different markets. And that's okay. It's not that they all need to be the same. Like going way back, that's where my question- I get it. I get, I get what you're saying, right? Because China does have search, right? Yes. They have Baidu. It's just not as important as Google. And just, yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. That's where that question around, are they the same foundational technologies way back when? That's where it was coming from. And I think I have a better understanding as a result of this conversation. I think I have a better understanding as well. And so good for both of us. Hopefully good for our listeners as well. Hopefully it, dare I say, it makes sense to them. <laughs> yes. Very good. Well, hopefully an invigorating sort of topic to start the new decade with. And I'm falling on team new decade. Very good. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Sounds like we will probably not be podcasting next week because you will be on your hoity-toity trip with the elites. Yes. Thank you. And I will, you know, as be muddling along alone. And that's fine. <laughs> um, I hope you have a good trip. Sounds good. Well, I'll maybe speak to you when I'm back and we have a interesting topic to dig into. So I saw some feedback on Twitter around, I'm disappointed when are you guys putting stuff out, but I have to confess, I really am enjoying doing this a little bit more sporadically, but doing it when we really feel like we have something to dig our teeth into. I'm loving this. So I hope our listeners understand that's the approach we're taking. I will have a good trip and I will, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye.